Hey, this is Thinking and Drinking. I'm your host, Bart Almond. Over the last 30 years or so, I've worked for major record companies, working with major artists such as Alabama, the Dixie Chicks, and the Florida Georgia Line. I've also been writing songs for the past 15 years, have over 50 cuts, two number ones, and made a lot of friends along the way. I'm going to be talking to some of those friends about songs, life on the road, and just life in general. I hope you have as much fun as I will. Hey, we've all lost our love for the music business at times, but Blake Chancey has never lost his love for music. It's one of the things I love about Blake. More about him in a sec. I'm so stoked to announce Paul Reed Smith Guitars as our newest sponsor. These cats are building the best guitars in the world. Massive company, but boutique quality. I've had at least one PRS guitar since 1987. So thank you and welcome aboard Paul Reed Smith Guitars. Check them out at prsguitars.com. As a producer, Blake's records have sold more than 30 million copies. I was blessed to work with Blake during the halcyon days of country music, and together we sold a ton of Dixie Chicks records while changing the face of country music. I've known Blake for over 20 years, and I would guess that for 19 years, 11 months, and 29 days, he's had a smile on his face. Here's Blake Chansey. Brother Blake Chansey. Yes, sir. How are you? Very good. Having a good day today. Yeah? What's the difference between a good day and a bad day? Uh, well, you're here. The <laughs> friends are around. Everybody in the house is happy. Nice. I like that. That That's, works. Yes. Things are going good, so I've got no complaints, man. Dude, this studio is awesome. I find that I have to have one. If I don't have a studio, I don't work, literally. Really? And, well, yeah, I don't, if I don't have my own place to go into, yeah. uh, a, a friend of mine has something like a name dropper. Alan Reynolds is a producer oh, in yeah. town. Uh, I was playing golf with him one day, and uh, we walk, uh, I was walking. He was riding, and he said, uh, you know, I sold my studio today, Blake. And I said, wow, in this environment? I said, that's awesome. And he goes, yeah, I sold it to Garth. And I said, well, of course you did. And I said, there's yeah. the cherry on top. That's the kiss of kiss. He goes, yeah, but I'm really sad, man. He goes, I would go in the studio in total darkness and just sit there and meditate. Mm. He said, I wrote Dreaming My Dreams in that studio, just sitting in there by myself. He goes, you know, a studio for me is someplace to go and just be left alone and nobody's yeah. going to bang on the door. And it isn't just for recording. And I said, well, what what'd you sell it for then? He goes, because Garth asked me to. How am I going to say no to him and all the stuff he's yeah. done for me? But I totally understand that. My friend Kyle Lenning's like that, too. If I don't have a place to walk into, I will not work. Yeah. And my friend Paul Worley, he can work anywhere. He loves just to work, 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 not me. I just, it has to feel right. I have to be comfortable, and then I can get something done. Dude, obviously my basement is nothing like this, but it's like just uh -huh. to be around all my guitars and my stuff, it's like it, it just helps. And you're out in the country and people like coming out here and, and hanging out. It's fun. You're not on Music Row. You don't have some intern making coffee out there that's banging around. And Remind me to show you my newest of the collection, that bass. It's a, yeah. a dear friend of mine, Dave Hall, passed away probably about six months ago. And... His first gig was in the 60s, and it was with George Jones, and he he just happened to be there, and George needed a bass player, and George said, you play bass? And at the time, he was a guitar player, and he mm -hmm. said, absolutely, I do. Sure. And he said, well, then I need you tomorrow night in whatever town. And Dave went and bought that bass and played with George, and then after that, he went on with Farron Young and used that bass, and he used it with Kitty Wells, and then he put it in a case under his bed for... 20 plus years mm. 
and I think he knew it was coming to an end, and he brought it to me and said, I want to give you this bass because I know you'll put it on stuff. It sounds like a freight train coming, too, man. It's a, it's awesome. It's an it's a early 60s, I believe, Epiphone bass. Dude, those hollow body Gibson flat wounds. sound awesome. Oh. Flat. Now, is that is that two pickups or is that just – Nope, that's one pickup. I stick that other thing in there to deaden the string. Okay. But you see where that's all the wood's gone around the pickup? That's where he rested his thumb when he played, and then there's a burn mark up at the top where he always put his cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> he was the only guy who played it. Now I got it. So it's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Well, let me run some names past sure. you. Who you got? <clears throat> David Ball, Mike Henderson, yep. Daryl Dodd, yep. Mary Chapin Carpenter, yep. Billy Ray Cyrus, yep. Bruce and Charlie Robison. Well, one's Robertson, the other's Robeson, but they are brothers. Right. right. Yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> it's like the Apice brothers. Yes. One of them's Apice. <laughs> Waylon freaking Jennings, Montgomery Gentry, Gretchen Wilson, Ronnie Millsap, Marty Stewart, Dixie Chicks, and on and on and on. It's like, what do you think when you hear that list? Uh, I've never looked at that list. Uh, so uh, it makes me uh, – I'm not. I don't think I'm that old, but right. it makes me feel like I've been doing this a long, long time. Dude. And uh, it, a lot of fun making music. A lot of good times. Yeah, and that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's some pretty good stuff, man. Um, obviously, musical family. I just mm-hmm. found out your dad, Ron. I didn't know he was. He worked at MCA. Yeah, Dad uh, was a traveling salesman when I was really little. And Harold Bradley took him to his first session. Harold just passed away, actually. Yeah. And Dad got the bug. And in our neighborhood, everybody played music. I just thought that was normal. Uh, uh, Maybelle Carter lived across the street. I used to play in her yard and do all of that. Uh, a guy named Brother Oswald, was our backyards touched him. He was the dobro player with Mr. Acuff. Oh, yeah. Bob Moore's backyard kind of touched ours, and he was part of the A-team. Um the Scruggs lived right down the road from us, and everybody in our neighborhood were musicians and played and, and did everything. And uh, I kind of got stuck on the recording side because I was just not a good player. I'd start playing guitar, and then somebody in the neighborhood would play it, and I'd be like, well, that's out. Uh, how about bass? Well, no, Larry Mars plays that now. Well, that's out. You know, so all of my guys in our neighborhood went on to be in – great bands or session yeah. players and everything so i got relegated to recording and i was the one that called everybody to make sure they would all show up to this little studio that i built to record a song and that's kind of how i got my path dang so you you started i mean engineering was the main thing yeah engineering i was on the road i, I used to work sound for and when i started i guess the first gig i did i was 14 and that was uh a guy named Steve Davis. He goes by Stephen Allen Davis now. Okay. Uh, he and his brother Costo. But Steve, when he was 16, wrote a song called Take Time to Know Her for, I think it was, who was that? Brooke Benton? But it was a huge smash. And Steve went straight to Harry Sadler Chevrolet and paid cash for a Corvette and drove off, and we never saw him again. <laughs> and uh, But after that, I kind of got the bug to go out and work sound a lot. And my mother, I can't believe she let me go into bars as a minor. Yeah. And, in town, but I worked in every club in Nashville for every band in Nashville. And I started going on the road when I was a senior, I think, in high school. I started doing a lot of frat band stuff, mm-hmm. doing all that whole scene, which turned into bigger things. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there you go. MTSU, 
they let me go on the road. Didn't you meet Lisa Ramsey at MTSU? I sure did. That's what I was thinking. I yep. was thinking that. Lisa was a dear friend. Uh, met a lot of people. Ted Wagner. Yeah. Norman DeVazier. Oh, Lindsey McDonald. Gary Overton. Gary, uh, a lot of those guys were a few years older than me, like uh, Gary O and uh, various others that went to MTSU. But mm-hmm. it was a small enough program where everybody knew everybody. Yeah. So. Well, how did you uh, transition to producing from engineering? Uh, what happened is I thought I was going to be a world-famous engineer, mm-hmm. and uh, I was getting out of college, and people were already hiring me to make records. And the Castle, which is a studio in Franklin, uh, uh, they were looking for a replacement for their main engineer, a guy named Chuck Ainley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no kidding. He's bad. He's yeah. great. So I went in, and the millions that – they were hiring me up and who so, owned the castle right and uh so i'm they told me to shadow chuck for two or three days so i remember pulling out this piece of gear it was this, during the beginning of the digital reverb era and i pull out this piece of gear and i'm just trying to figure out how to turn it on and chuck grabs it and starts running it and everything i said oh so you already have one of these he goes no it's the first time i've ever seen it too <laughs> and i started realizing that i was way in over my head and that i wasn't going to be very good at this so i went home <laughs> after the second day i went home and my dad and a guy named bob beckham were on the back of my dad's mm. boat elvira drinking yeah and i came in and i said i have made a huge error because i've been working sound since i was 14 and at this point i was probably 22 23 and i said man i've this is my path, and I just realized, and I just ran into Tiger Woods. Right. Right? I'm not going to win. I, I, this isn't going to work. And Beckham said, son, That's awesome. Beckham says, son, you're going to come work for me in publishing. And I was like, well, what's, what's that? And my dad goes, you've got to be kidding me. You don't know what a publishing is? Because my dad was always in the record business. Yeah. And I said, well, I know what a copyright is. I mean, I learned that in college, but right. I don't know what a publisher is. And Beckham says, you'll be fine, son. You can talk to a wall. You can do this. <laughs> and so I got into that world. And then the first thing he did was stick me back in the studio to start doing demos and right. started working with this guy named Dennis Lindy. And that pretty much made everybody want to work with me after that. Yeah. I got in the middle of that. Man. So, uh, so wait, you were, were you producing those demos then? Uh, yeah, I was producing the demos, and with Dennis, I probably learned the most. He was the first track guy, so that would have been mid-'80s. We were – everything was – did it all in sempty, but we nothing was played except for some acoustic guitar, maybe a guitar solo. Okay. Bass, drums, key – Every we had every fake sample in the world, and we would spend a whole month doing one song, and then I'd immediately bring it to town and get it cut because he was so good yeah. that he just – you know, from Bubba Shot the Jukebox to Queen of My Double Wide Trailer to Goodbye Earl to, uh, you know, Hunk yeah. a Hunk of Burning Love, Calling Baton Rouge. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I didn't know you wrote that. Oh, yeah. And he did them Man. all by himself and never left his house. You know, he was the first guy that I ever mm. met that co-wrote with himself. <laughs> he would. He had one part of his house where he wrote melodies <laughs> and built tracks. And then he had another part of the house that was a library that he wrote lyrics. And then when he'd get a stack of lyrics and a stack of tracks started that we'd had started, yeah. he would start flipping through them and he would count consonants or words or whatever oh, yeah. to make make the cadence fit. And that's how the songs would become together. Right. And then he would finish them and make them, meld them together, and then we'd finish the track. Isn't that wacky? That's insane. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> Some guys are... Are just better than other people. Well, he he would always do stuff like that to keep him interested. Yeah. Because he only worked when Pam would get nervous and think that 
he wasn't working, right. so they might not be able to eat. And so then we would have to go to Dennis and tell him Pam was upset, and he'd go, okay. <laughs> and then he'd start back up again, and it would, it would, it would hit. You know? Oh, man. So how did you uh, get to Sony Records? Uh, I had been working for – it was Combine Music with Beckham. Then it was uh, the entertainment company with uh, Charles Koppelman and Marty Bandier. And then it became SBK okay. with those same guys. Yeah. And then EMI. So during all of that, I was in the studio. A guy named Jimmy Gilmer kept me in the studio a lot. And then after that, Celia Froelig kind of kept me in there as well. And I was doing all the demos, and people would get signed to record deals, and then they would immediately turn around and hand them to whoever the producer right. of the moment was, yeah. you know, whether it was Paul or Worley or whether it was James Stroud or Kyle, whoever. Yeah. You know, and after you have that done to you about six or seven times, it starts pissing you off, yeah. you know? <laughs> what about me? You and so I got in? lucky. Uh, uh, Joy Lynn White, uh, they oh, had yeah. liked all the demos. It, basically, I, we were taking all of Mike Henderson's songs, and they were all bluegrass songs, and I was turning them into up-tempo, hillbilly kind of rocking songs. Yeah. And that was the shtick with all my friends I grew up with, and Madison were playing on all of it. And my friend Larry Mars was dating Joy. And I said, I need a female singer. And he goes, well, I've got the girl. Right. So we cut all the stuff. I'd never heard her sing before. And she walked in the studio and started singing. And Henderson, we about fainted, you know. So she would blow through and do one pass. And then Larry would go out there and do the harmonies. And we'd knock all this out. And then all these songs were getting cut. Well, she ends up getting a record deal. Paul goes in and re-records everything, but it doesn't sound like. Yeah. So the label said, hey, we want it to sound like this. So they called me and Paul called me. And they were all, it was like a big, they were all going at it. I, they finally, I just said, I, I can work with Paul. I like Paul. Why wouldn't yeah. I be able to work with Paul? So we, <laughs> we went in and started doing that. So then when Paul went to work at Sony, he brought me in over there as his right arm guy. Dude, that was an awesome time. <clears throat> when I got there, it was you, Paul, Scott Simon, Alan Butler. Who helped? But I mean, that was, you the main guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Scott, Paul, and Alan were the main guys when I was hired. Yeah. And uh, and uh, there was another label. Doug Johnson was there. Yeah, you know it was an interesting time because they were all kind of button heads, and everybody Man. was big button trying to get in their spot. And yeah. I was the junior junior of the juniors there, so I was just trying to <laughs> not get fired, <laughs> keep a job for well, more than a year. You know, I think you did pretty good there. Well, so obviously. Uh, Grammy Awards for Best Country Album for both the first two Chicks records, correct? Yeah. yeah. Wide Open Spaces and Fly. And you graciously framed the foam from one of those Grammys and for me and Larry Paregas. That was awesome. Still hanging on my wall. I, I say, that's my Grammy over there. That's right. You and, delivered. That's right. I said thanks for <laughs> delivering on it. Absolutely. Well, how did the crazy success of those two records change your life? I mean, good and bad. Uh, you know... I always people ask how did it, does it happen or whatever, and there's so much luck yeah. involved in all of this. Uh, Scott uh, Simon owed their manager Simon Renshaw a favor, okay, and that's a whole another podcast that that whole story, <laughs> uh, the whole story. But uh, Scott was in a spot at that point where he wasn't in a signing people, mm-hmm. but I could. Because Ricochet had hit and yeah. other things. I was having some success. Things were going pretty good for me. So he said, would you go see this act? You know, And I'm like, 
man, I've already passed on them twice. He goes, as a favor, just go, just help me out on this. You can say no. Did you pass on them with Natalie in the band or before? uh, No, it was pre. We ended up signing them with Laura Lynch. It was not Natalie in the band. Oh, okay. So I went down there and went, maybe. And then I went to uh, Dallas and the three of them played for me, Laura Lynch and uh, Marty and Emily played for me, and I went, you know, I think I can figure this out. So we actually recorded some with her. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then uh, Simon came in one day and sat with me and said, the girls want to change lead singers. And I said, well, man, I've heard of changing the bass player or the drummer, but the lead singer? And he goes, well, they've got two girls they're talking to that they're really excited about. I, to this day, don't know who the other girl was. She must have been a... A badass. Yeah. So, uh, and the reason they wanted to change is they wanted somebody that could sing with more range. Okay. So they could do solos and be more adventurous musically. Sure. In that era, a lot of those singers were singing, the, you know, the range of the songs were pretty yeah. compact. You know, Amy Lou Harris's and uh, Susie Boggess's and Kathy Mateo's, all great singers. Yeah, but, absolutely. And and some of those can sing like that, but it's just the type of music that at that point was very, yeah. the range was pretty like that. So they bring in Natalie. So I went back down to see them, and Natalie was good. It wasn't like it was, the, the gods didn't go, oh, right. it was just like, huh, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? Yeah. Because unfortunately, we had given them the worst recording deal in the history of music. <laughs> So what, what did we have to lose? And I still feel bad about that, and I apologize as often as I can. But uh, um, so we record, but at the time, I, if you'll remember, our our label was all focused on another group, the Kinleys. Oh, yeah. And everybody was going, you know, it was almost like a competition. The, the, the other team, if you will, would come up and go, that's how it's done. Yep. Check out this, you yeah. know. And we were all kind of looking at each other, going, "We, you know, we're, a we all work for the same place. Why are we doing this?" Yeah. And B, I think what we've done is really good. Yeah, you know, maybe are you guys listening? I mean, I like the Kenleys and all, but are you listening Absolutely. to what we're doing? So when it went kaboom, it was a shock. Yeah. Nobody expects to, for that to happen. You think that you might sell gold, you might sell platinum, but you don't go, "Wow, we're going to sell fourteen million albums." Nobody ever comes out of the gate thinking that right? right so when it goes boom it was uh it changed a lot you know we were all kind of all you know now you got to do it again you know yeah. and new york's all of a sudden paying attention to you because you've got the biggest thing <laughs> they have right so they're all wanting yeah, in the worldwide. picture and everybody's wanting in the picture so the pressure ramped way up um luckily for me i would i had probably spent the most time with with everybody with Everybody would stay at my house or go yeah. with me on the weekends uh, just because I'd done all the original demos. I had done all the developing. I'd you know found a lot of the first songs, you know, and, and then Paul jumped on board with us and everything and was contributed a lot. But at that point, I was much more plugged into yeah. it and much more in the process of everybody knowing each other. So when it hit... You know, they still kept coming to my house and staying, and and everybody was all kind of hiding, laying low, and going to the pool hall and drinking beer and doing our thing. But that second record, they blocked out a bunch of time to make it and had told their manager, do not let anybody come in. Let us make this record. I think you might have been there the night that we we finished the first record when we had the burping contest. Oh, yeah. And we recorded all that. I wish I had the record. It's in the vault at Sony. <laughs> the whole thing of them getting out there, and I was recording. And 
Dude, each, all three, every burp. All three of those girls were pretty darn good at that. And uh, and I think Emily or Wix, one of the two of them, won the burping contest. <laughs> but, you know, we were having a great time and doing That's, stuff oh, like man. that. But uh, what changed for me probably was just all of a sudden the demands of New York and our company yeah. looking at me going, now what are you going to do? Right. You know, How are you like, going to top that? All right. And now you got to do it again. You know, sophomore yeah. albums are really hard. And uh, that album, I'm as maybe I, Paul likes Wide Open Spaces more, and I think it's a great record. But I think Fly is more of a a, a record that we conceptually thought of from beginning to end. Yeah. You know? The well, first time we're trying to cut hit singles for radio. The second one we're like, you know, now we can spread our wings a little and stretch the format and well, do plus things. Now they had had uh, Natalie in the band for three years and had done 500 shows and yeah, really and knew what they were. Natalie's awesome, man. She, yeah. you know, I went some of the darkest times in my life. She was there for me. She's yeah. awesome. You know, came and made me go to work, you know, did you go see that last tour they did? I did. Did you like it? I did. I wish they had played more of their hits, Yeah, but I liked it a lot. You know, they're almost at a spot. I don't know if they would ever do it. And I'm assuming probably Natalie's writing the set list at yeah. this point. Uh, I thought it was good, but they're almost at a spot like The Who or certain acts that can go play an album from beginning to end. Yeah. They could almost do a fly tour and just play the album from beginning yeah. to end and then come back in the encore and play their other hits. Yeah. You know, I, I think that would be pretty be slick. so cool. You know, I didn't get to see it. Amy got to see it. I was, I don't know what the deal was. I didn't get to see it, but she said it was it awesome. Was, she said all the arrangements were really interesting. Right. It's like a young L.A. hip band. So yeah. she said it wasn't quite as acoustic and airy as it used to be, but right, but it was still it was good, great. man. Oh yeah, it was it was rocking, and you know they've got they, you know it's it still really really works. I remember being backstage and I said it was great. <laughs> Emily and Marty were like, really? I didn't think that was one of our better shows, and I said, well, I don't have anything to compare it to, quite yeah. honestly. But I thought what you did was great, you know, and everybody was same old crap. You think know? they'll ever make any new music? I think they're making music now. I don't think it'll be it'll be more rock based or yeah. you know in that world. I, you know, uh, Paul always holds out hope one day that they'll call and want to make the third record. Yeah. You know, the one, the you know that acoustic record was a lot of the pre production that they were working on for us to make uh, the third okay. record, and then and Sony waved a bunch of millions in front of them and they said well how about this you know yeah. and, it, and that's a good record but it yeah. would have been fun to have at least done three with them in that way you know I keep telling Paul's like man I don't ever see it happening yeah. you know and it's not a big deal anyway you know because yeah. talking about pressure now you're making this with these people now what do you got to do I mean it would be fun and I would like to do it, but I, I won't ever see it happening. Yeah. And they're going to say, the, we got the dream team back together. Yeah, so, and that's oh, too much okay. pressure on them, too, oh, the absolutely. girls. And that's too much pressure on everybody. But yeah. Paul would love to, and I would show up. <laughs> <laughs> With a bottle of vodka? No, yeah. And a burping contest. Yes, Let's a burping go. contest. Yep. Yeah, dude, I remember taking those girls because, uh, okay, Kinley's run Epic. Columbia had was it Shauna Patron? Yes. No, she ended up being on. Uh, she was on. She was on Epic also. No, she ended up being. I thought wasn't. No, she was on Epic. You're right. I think so. And then we had the chicks. Right. And I remember wading them into fifty-five thousand radio stations, 
and three cute girls in tight clothes with red guitar cases. And immediately every woman in these radio stations just rolled their eyes and going, oh, what is this? And then we'd set up and they'd play and they just tore everybody's heads off. It was the greatest, yeah. man. It was unbelievable. And selling records, you know, like you're talking about, like, I've got two Diamond Awards at home for those first two records. Yeah. I remember when the second record, when Flyd went double platinum, we were still doing 30,000 pieces a week of the wide open one. spaces. They were both in the top oh, it's crazy. five forever. Yeah. yeah. That's fun. It is fun. It was fun. <laughs> well, how long did you stay at Sony? Too long. Uh, I was probably there, I can't remember, nine or ten years. Yeah. Man, it's that's the worst job on the planet Earth. You know, it's just, it's you know, you think it's going to be so much fun looking at it from the outside, and I can't wait to get there. And then you get in there, and then you realize, oh, man, somebody's yeah. always trying to do something to you, and uh, internally, you yeah. know, and the pressures, you know, you've, you they give you a goal, you hit the goal, and as soon as you hit the goal, they go, "Great! Now, how are you going to do it again?" Yeah, you know, and it's just the stress, the amount of. My wife tells my daughter all the time about the hours I used to work that I would oh, go man. in at nine or nine thirty, and then I'd work till two, and then I'd go in the studio and I'd work till midnight. Yeah, every day and then i'd leave at midnight and go down to the pool hall yeah. drink beer for a couple of hours <laughs> and my friends would always be there waiting for me you yep. know and charlie and bruce and whoever was in town and people that were around even you know artists that i were making records on that i wasn't making records on at that particular time yep. would be waiting for me there because they knew that was the only time we were all going to see each yeah. other and then i'd wake up in the morning and do it again you know and it just it was uh you it hurts, yeah. you know, and uh, people I always tell people dog years that, you know, it really feels like 30 years, not 10. Oh, absolutely. And it's the truth, you know, and people go, would you do it again? It's like, no. Uh, you know, I would, I'd love to be in a position to help people get into that yeah. position, but I, I don't want to be the one to get up and do those hours ever again. I like kind of Dude, doing what I want to do when I want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's people don't understand what it's like to be gone 230 or 40 days a year. Yeah, man. Or in your case, you're in town, but you're not home, which is, to me, it's even worse. If you're in Denver, it's like, fine, we're in Denver. We've got nothing to do. But if you're home and you're in town and you can't go home and see your family, that's worse. My stepdad, he was in the sausage business and he worked his ass off. And uh, he passed away here recently. But he used to always say to, you know, when he first was around me, 25 years ago or whatever when he and my mother first got together you know i had long hair and whatever and he'd give me grief but then he started realizing you work all the time and it kind of changed our relationship he he kind of found a respect for me in that way that that now blake work because everybody looks at you if you're in music oh you you guys are in music how hard can that be right right you know and then he he saw it, you know. He saw the sausage being made on my end, and it kind of went, "Wow, man!" And my mother would always take up for me. Now, don't get on Blake, you know. But he finally got to where he got it. Well, it's obviously your mom knew the business. I've yeah, my poor I, mother, dude. I mean, I'm 55, and I'm still trying to explain the music business to my folks. And if you don't live in it, and you're not up to your eyeballs in it. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's impossible to explain, and it is. And uh, luckily for me, I've gotten to spend a ton of time with my daughter. If if she had been born ten years before, I yeah. wouldn't have. My father was gone all the time. Yeah. The only time I saw my dad is when I went to the recording studio. You know, he'd he'd be doing a commercial in one studio and, and doing a, an, an album in another studio at the same time. I mean, he worked. All the time, and they did night sessions back then. Most guys today are more lunch, you know, pay all. Yeah. I drop my kids off at school and go do a session. Yeah, they didn't start till six, and they do a six ten, and sometimes two in the morning. <sighs> and then Dad had a job during the day too, yeah. you know. So I never saw him, but you know, it, he's my best friend now. Yeah. But we didn't get to see each other much back then. So, man, yeah, it's funny when everybody gets to slow down you realize you actually like these people yeah man it's kind of nice to hang out isn't it <laughs> wish you would have done this 30 years ago well how did what how, what made you and scott simon start rpm well scott like you know when i went to work at sony uh he was kind of the guy that hired me yeah. paul is the one that hired me but <laughs> scott goes well I remember we went to the first lunch, and Scott looks at me and goes, well, how much? And I said, how much for what? Right. And he, he looked at Paul and said, you haven't even talked to him, have you? And Paul goes, well, of course I have. He knows what you're talking about. And I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. Paul, Paul had forgotten to tell me that he was trying to hire me. Yeah. So Scott and I became real close then. And when we first went to work at Sony, there used to be things, they don't have them anymore, called branches. At oh, record yes. labels. They had one in Dallas. They had one in Minneapolis. They had one. Detroit. Yeah. They had all yep. the branches. So, Scott, we went and visited every branch in one year. Okay. And, and every time we would go, it would be a party. So, we would rock with all these people. Mm-hmm. And I've always been pretty good at that. Right. At being able to not get way wasted and being yeah. able to do business and have a cocktail. That's what my first boss told me, son, we drink for a living. So you just got to learn how to do it and not be an idiot <laughs> yeah. and be able to continue on. And it's still that way. You know, yeah. you have all your meetings over a beer. Yeah. You know, so uh, <laughs> we went to all these different parties and got to know. We traveled together, went to Toronto, went to California. And in one year, traveling together with somebody and riding together with somebody, we got to where we could finish each other's sentences because yeah. we would do the pitch over and over. So we got really – we're still like that. Yeah. So after, uh, after the – I went home for a little while and tried to get part of my brain back after leaving the Sony situation or being asked to leave the Sony situation. It depends on which way you look at it, I guess. <laughs> I was also uh, I, I got the, uh, the lobotomy and got part of that hard drive space back in my brain, got that <laughs> removed. Uh, we started doing publishing, and that was where I came from, from Beckham and all of that. And we started signing people and developing artists and ownership of copyrights, which is the – real estate of the music business and got pretty good at it and we've done real well and we're still partners so rpm started as a publishing company yeah okay yeah Uh, scott had the management side but we started a publishing company okay and uh, had you know some really good success through all of that and then we finally rolled it in and we're doing bigger things and buying bigger catalogs just signed the warren brothers uh nice last week Uh, bought their catalog and did a go forward with them now you're talking crazy yeah they're (laughs) They're better sober. Yes, I would agree with that. They are. I remember uh, when I was working with Danny Lee at uh-huh. that time frame, we just kept bumping into those guys everywhere. 
and every story started with, oh, man, we were so hammered last night. And right. then – and then They'll still tell insanity. you the story. Yeah. yeah. You know what's crazy is they can remember all that. Oh, I know it. And most people that do that can't remember yeah. anything. They can remember everything that they ever did and wherever they were when it happened. And that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, they're so talented and they finish each other's sentences. Oh, yeah. I mean they, they don't go anywhere without – you know, the two brothers are always together. They're good dudes. And too, they're close man. with Tim and Yeah. You know, they've getting all these cuts. So they're kinda of like our first signing for our new venture we're doing. Oh, that's and, cool. And we're getting ready to ramp up and start buying more catalogs and more songs and still developing some new talent and So how do you find writers or what catches your ear? Uh in my world I, I I'm very spiritual and I think things follow me like a tree mm-hmm. everything all the successes i've had in my life were something fell on me you know and and that's how i usually find new acts and whatever they come in and and i just hear it and and go wow i gotta work on that i gotta be a part of that i get that feeling in my gut that i always get when i mm-hmm. when i hear something i love and and it's crazy you know are you signing just pure writers or are you trying to make acts out of every writer uh, all I'm, the I'm signing writers that have catalogs mm-hmm. that they want to sell because it's kind of like the real estate business yeah. the investors we have want to buy catalogs but then on the new artist i'm just doing artist uh writers and then trying to get them in the room with the right people to help develop their sounds mm-hmm. and trying to get it up and running and doing that and and mcgraw is going to be a part of some of that on his oh, cool. side too so that's good to have that's awesome do you think um all those years at record companies changed your outlook on publishing or I know uh, actually you not at all no. uh, I still think publishing is the most important part of what we do yeah and you know I, I remember telling uh, Eddie and Troy uh, Eddie Montgomery and Troy Gentry that they weren't writers and Eddie wanted to be a writer but I said it's okay because it's good to have great writers that you believe in their songs yeah. in your camp that you can go back to. And as a publisher, that was very important. And being an old publisher, I remember songs from 20 years ago. So a lot of the biggest hits I've been a part of, like I, I did not produce Great Day to Be Alive, but I'm the one that you know held the gun to his head and said, you have to cut this song. You know, This is a song you have to cut. The Travis? Yeah, and he, he wasn't very excited about cutting the song at the time, but... It ended up being huge for him. Yeah. That song was 18 years old or 17 years old at the time. John right? Randall cut that when I was at RCA with him. Yeah. So yeah. Daryl Scott, I remember calling him. He was like, huh? What? What? What song? And uh, uh, Cold Day in July on the Dixie Chicks, that song was 22 years old when we cut it. When I called him and told him, man. I said, man, I cut one of your songs today. Oh, which one? And I told him. And he said, on who? And I, and I, and I told him. I thought it, it, dead silence for ever. Until I finally, he goes, I, I, I don't know what to say. I said, well, it's killer. I can't wait to play it for you. Glad you wrote it. Thank you. Yeah. So do you just have this encyclopedic knowledge of songs where you just remember all these songs? I remember a lot of songs. I, I've listened to a gazillion songs. Yeah. And then when you're a song plugger, like I was uh, coming up, you remember yeah. songs and you remember other people's songs that you were in the room for when they got cut. And those are some of my f- favorite times and favorite stories are, are those in the in the world, you know, and things happening, and you were there and yeah. watched it happen. You get the same excitement from pitching a song and having a big hit that you do from cutting a song and having a big hit. So. Yeah, man, no kidding. Um, so we started this thing 
on the website were asking, I, like I asked this question, what would you ask Blake Chansey? So the hmm. one question I loved was from a young man named Rob. And he said, what are some of the different challenges of producing for a single artist versus producing a band? Oh, okay. They're all hard. Yeah. Um, and I say that because, uh, you know, we've done this a long, long time. And when I say, hey, I wouldn't walk through that door, somebody's going to hit you over the head with a sledgehammer. And somebody goes, well, I'm walking through the damn door anyway. And they walk into the door and they get hit in the head with a sledgehammer. And then they come back and go, wow, you were right. You know, <laughs> But it's usually after the fact. Yeah. People have to experience something going wrong they won't take your word for it right right and every new artist i work with already thinks they know how this is going to work and how it's going to play out yeah and it used to bother me but now i just kind of go okay and then i'll try to work with them and if they continue down that path i, I don't but yeah. usually about halfway into a project it has to be their idea they'll go hey you know what maybe we should try it this way and you go yeah that's probably a good idea you know or hey Blake do you think this would work you know you can try it because that's my rule everybody I work with we try everything sure. if it's my idea we try it if it's your idea we try it and then we listen to it and you know 50% of the time it's not going to work yeah. and it's okay I'll say well that was a bad idea you know and it's my <laughs> idea let's don't do that you know and once people get into that and understand that it works. So when you have one person you're dealing with doing that, that's one thing. When you yeah. have three to five people doing that, it gets a little harder. Yeah. And so it's it's harder working with bands. It's much harder working with bands. But at the end of the day, once you get halfway through a record, if it's settling in, then it everybody's on the same page and everybody knows what to expect and then yeah. it becomes easy. But the beginning's always tough. Always. <laughs> How how does that conversation when you have to go to the drummer of the band and go, you know what, you're a great live drummer, but <laughs> maybe not in the studio. Usually how that works is, is all, this works, it happens every time. We have to use our band. Oh, yeah. And in some cases, it works. Yeah. 30, 40% of the time, you go, wow, that's really unique. Yeah. That's really good. And about 60% of the time, it doesn't. But what happens is when we try everything, if you're not the drummer, but you're in the band mm -hmm. and you're listening to it and you're standing next to me and we look at each other, they get it. They go, well, that doesn't sound right. You know? It doesn't and, sound like a record. So then it becomes more of a, hey, Blake and I were talking right. and we probably, <laughs> they don't usually make me fall on the sword by myself, you know? and. Yeah. uh I'm working with a band right now, and I went. They all wanted to play on it. And we went in. They're playing on it, and it's awesome. Yeah, and it's really good. And it takes longer, but it's really good, and it's very unique. I'll play you some of it before you leave. Yeah, please. Uh, but yeah, that's how I deal with that. So you grew up with your dad in the studio. Like when I was growing up, I would look at a Van Halen record, and it would say, "These four guys." Did all the singing, all the playing, ZZ Top, same thing. Mm -hmm. I got down here, and my ex-wife brought home, she worked at uh, Acuff Rose. Mm -hmm. She brought home a Sawyer Brown record, and I turned it over, and it said musicians, and there was about 20 names in there that yeah. weren't in the band. I had no idea that the bands weren't playing on, I mean, is that 
always been, or did George Jones used to take his band in the studio? Uh, it's pretty much always been that yeah. way because, uh, I mean, some of the guys would, like Haggard would take his. Oh, uh, yeah. Sometimes he would take his band in. Now, Buck always tucked the buckaroos in, buckaroos in right. but, um, but they had Don Rich, and he yeah. was. He was a yeah, and he was running it like you were in the you were in the army or something. He worked those guys to death. But no, it was usually uh, financial reasons. Uh, A guy named Pappy Daly was the guy that did all the early George Jones stuff, and he would come to town and he would want to record twelve songs in one day. Yeah, and he would bring the A team in and bring George in, and George would sing them on the fly, and my mother-in-law did some with George Melba, and she said they would just come in and blow through 12 songs in a day, and that's hard to do with a, with your live band, Yeah, and it'd be good, but you get, back then, Buddy Harmon and, and Bob Moore and those guys, it was just like another day at the office for them, yeah. and they'd just blow through it, and it'd be done, you know, so and also what, financial reasons. What great singers, before tuning and everything, you, th- you think about... Somebody doing, like, especially as stylistic as George was, where if he was a little bit pitchy, it would have been awful. And you think about those cats and Wayland and stuff going through that. uh, uh, If you have a second, uh, Wayland, we were at his house, and we were talking about making a record. (laughs) We were talking about, we had just recorded some music, and uh, it was the day O.J. Simpson was on the run in his White Bronco. Bronco. <laughs> so we had to stop and watch that. I'll never forget that, sitting next to Waylon watching OJ run. I went, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. But we were talking about getting ready to do vocals and stuff, and we were getting ready to do another album. I went to his house, and we were talking about it. And I said, Waylon, we're going to dump all this to this hard drive system so I can edit and whatever. And he goes, I've heard about that. You let that Pro Tools touch my voice, Blake Chancy, I will kill you. <laughs> and I just got, and he was, you know, serious. serious. And I just kind of looked at him kind of weird, and I said, well, no, sir, I wouldn't do that i was just for us to edit and make things easier so we were working on this record and uh and jesse was singing she's awesome yeah but she was singing i'm not uh uh oh storms never last and she was going storms never last Uh, she was hitting this one note and it was just in between Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we're in the studio and we're listening through that's the first pass and Waylon kind of looks at me weird, and so Tony Castle, this engineer I work with a lot, he plays the second one. Same exact, I mean, she was consistent. She mm-hmm. hit the same note exactly the same way, and, it, and Waylon's head turned. So we went through all of them, and he goes, well, what are we going to do? And Tony Castle says, well, Mr. Jennings, I can fix that. And uh, he looks at me, Waylon does. And before he can say anything, Tony Castle goes with his computer and yeah. hits it and plays it back. And it was perfect. Perfect. And Waylon just looked at me and said, don't you say anything. <laughs> he goes, that's a great job, Tony. And from that point forward, every time we would get to something Waylon didn't like, he'd say, do that thing to it, Tony. And Tony would fix it. And he'd just look at me and glare. I never said one word no, about it. Though. Just but, let him have his way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Dude, uh, we were talking about um, – uh, she what was a live record I was just talking about, Waylon. Oh, the one from the... Never Say Die? Yeah, and it was the one from uh, the Grand Ole Opry. The Ryman. Yeah, the Ryman. Yeah. But uh, when I was working with him at RCA, it was when he had carpal tunnel surgery on both yeah. wrists. Yeah. Which I always wanted to, but I never dared to ask about, you know, like, how do you go to the bathroom? <laughs> how, do you, <laughs> how do you button your pants? <laughs> I thought, I'm not going to say anything. But I broke my wrist, and... I did not know that he had black casts on, and I had a black cast. Okay. And he saw me in the office, and he just looks at me, and he goes, man, 
everybody wants to be like Waylon. And he just, <laughs> and he just walked off. It was like, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. <laughs> Dude, we were having lunch with him one day. Yeah, I love him. And, uh, and he was telling some story about the highwayman. And he kept talking about Shorty. I didn't know who he was talking about. Finally, I go, oh, okay, that's Willie, because he's calling Cash and Christopherson and Shorty. And he's telling some some story. I, I can't even remember. All of a sudden, he just stopped and looked at me, and he goes, you know, Shorty'd smoke a pickle if he could get it lit. And they just went <laughs> right back into the story, and I'm going like, what the crap? That's the funniest thing ever. But, man, he was an awesome storyteller. Yeah. I, I, I'm still like a name dropper, but I got to play golf with Willie. And we were nice. on number like 10 or something, and when everybody's good and relaxed. And he said, uh, Blake, I hear you work with Waylon. I said, yes, sir. And uh, he said, yeah. He said, how's that going? I said, it's good. I said, it can be a little difficult. And he goes, yeah, I bet, you know. And he's going <laughs> on, and he, and he was uh, smoking one, you know. Right. And he goes, yeah, we call it the great experiment, uh, the highway man. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, Waylon, he, you know, he liked to, the, the cocaine, you know. He was addicted for many years, and look what that did, you know. He's diabetic and, and yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, now, Chris, you know, Chris was an alcoholic. He'd drink whiskey and everything, you know, and he just recently had a quadruple bypass. I said, yeah, uh-huh. He goes, Johnny Pills. Look what that did. And I said, yeah. And he goes, me? I smoke pot, and I'm doing just fine. <laughs> he called it the great experiment. <laughs> it lasted 50 years between those guys. Golly, man. Mm. So what was that? Okay, so how much, like, sound checking and stuff did you do at the Ryman? Because you had a horn section and everything, uh, man. And We went on the road and rehearsed. Oh, you did? With them for a while and got that straight. And then I recorded all of the all of the sound checks so I could cut if I needed anything from right. those. Uh, I don't know if Waylon was in really bad health. Yeah. And right before he went on stage one night, he completely blacked out. Jesse screams, black, you know, and I go running in there and he's literally in the floor and we're picking him up. And I was like, you know, sir, I need to cancel this. Yeah. And he goes, I have never canceled a show and I will not cancel this show. And I looked at Jesse and she goes, he's going to do it. She goes, I've already talked to him. He's going to do it. There's nothing we can do. And he went out and kicked complete ass, you know, and he had just completely fell out. I guess he might've been, uh, you know, yeah, had, diabetic, had enough, yeah. or had dehydrated or something. And he went out and kicked, kicked complete ass, you know, and that band. Oh, my God. Dude, I was talking about Robbie Turner yesterday. Just I love Robbie uh, Turner. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. One of my favorite other— Reggie. Wh- what? Reggie. Oh, man. Young. You know, God. He's lived out by me. Yeah. But but uh, Ricky Medlock, we were talking about Waylon one day, and he said, man, when Blackfoot was kind of winding down, our monitor guy went to work for Waylon. And we both happened to be in Phoenix on the same day, and we had a day off. So he calls me. He goes, Ricky, you want to come over and say hey to Waylon and watch his show? I was like, like absolutely, yeah. man. So he walks over there, rides over there, whatever, goes back, and Waylon's sitting down, smoking a cigarette, drinking a big glass of whiskey. He says, you want a drink? And Ricky goes, yeah, I guess. I don't know. He said he pour- poured him 12 ounces of whiskey. It's like, good Lord. <laughs> He's looking at that. And you know how Jesse always has to have a white 
grand piano. It was in mm-hmm. their that's rider. her Friday, yeah. That's her deal. Well, at this theater, all they had was a black one. And Jesse kind of started throwing a bit of a fit. Right. And the production guy comes back to Waylon. He says, man, we cannot find a white grand piano to use today. This black one's going to have to do. And Jesse is not happy about it. Waylon goes, okay. Clank, puts his drink down, looks at Ricky, says, I'll be right back. So he walks out of the room. Now, Ricky can hear this, can hear the stage from the dressing room. There's screaming and yelling and glass breaking and more screaming and more yelling. And then it just stops. And Waylon comes back in, sits down, picks up his drink, looks at the production guy and goes, Jesse says that black piano will be just fine. (laughs) (laughs) Those cats, man. Well, like, are you, are you digging what track guys are doing and stuff? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's here to stay, right? Well, you know, like I said, Dennis Lindy was the first original yeah. track guy. And the only difference in what he was doing and what they're doing now is his stuff sounded like a real drummer was playing it. Yeah. Uh, it all, you know, he made the courses rush and and the verse would would sink back in. He would pro, We would program. It would take us a day to get it right. And then he'd spend a week programming mistakes. To make it, give it a human feel, to if give you it, will, yeah. right? And I wish he was alive today because I build tracks all the time. It's, yeah. it's a monkey can do, build a track, right. and it's drag this groove in, put this sound on. Okay, this bass thing, play a couple of bars of it, copy and paste. Okay, now I got a bass part. Let me pick up a guitar. Let me just play it from beginning to end. Okay, this course is good. Let me click it everywhere. Okay, let me. I mean, it's fine. I, yeah. I can do it. It's. I, I, in my, where I am in my life, I don't want to sit in front of a computer screaming program yeah. for 16 hours a day. And that's what it takes. You know, the songwriter, the guys that like the Warren Brothers, they'll walk in with an idea and they'll write with a track guy and they'll be there for three hours and then they get up and leave and the track guy gets to sit there until 10 o'clock at night putting it all together, yeah. taking their voices, tuning them up, getting them in the right place and then they go home and, you know, I, I, I have no want no. to do that. I don't either. And a lot of those guys do the same trick over and over and over and over. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, back in the, I guess that would have been the Bowen late 80s, 90s, every record sounded exactly the same mm-hmm. because it was the exact same musicians in the exact same studio. And they would just switch the singer out and yeah. drop another one in. And it's kind of gotten that way with some of the track guys are yeah. using the exact same samples and the exact same bass sample and the exact same everything. And you want to call them up and go, man, you're really good at what you do, but yeah. you need to buy some other stuff. Yeah, You need to change it up and at least you need to trick your, you need to make yourself want to make stuff sound different. You don't want to be the producer that has the exact same sound on every record. Yeah. You know, that's, but, you know, I get it, man. They're making money as writers more than they are as producers. Yeah. And every, every song you got to do the full thing on, whether it's good or bad. And if this one's good, then just take it and use it. It was so funny. We were listening to, Amy and I were driving to Mississippi and back. I don't remember, but she's in charge of the radio when we're doing that. And she turned it to some classic country station on XM and this big, open airy acoustic thing started and i'm going like what the crap is that that sounds turn that up and she looked at me and she goes 
you worked that record, idiot. It's a Dixie Chicks. It's like, it just sounded so right. uncompressed and open and airy. And it just sounded so live instead well, of. That's uh, part of producing that I, I like to do is sound design mm-hmm. and trying to give each artist their own identifiable yeah. sound. So when it comes on the radio, you hear it and it doesn't sound like everything else that's on the radio in front of it. And right. when that, when the, their stuff came out, Things had tons of fake reverb on them, oh, and things were cut very bright, and things that were huge compressed. Explosion, snare drum, right? Sound. And on that record, we didn't use one stick of reverb, any reverb. Really? No, unless it was on a guitar amp, built-in spring reverb. There's nothing on her wow. voice. There's a little bit of delay, but everything on that record is just complete. The source is nothing yeah. added to it, and you know we we had. Uh, some the engineer we worked with, uh, John Guess, was used to doing the other. Mm-hmm. So when we would work, it was it was very intense. You know, he he did not want to do that. And Paul kind of came from the world of doing a lot of that first. Yeah. And I was trying to go, hey guys, we we're trying to do something completely different. Paul and I, Paul, we would always get on the same page, and then we'd have to go back to John and go, John, I'm sorry, man, but yeah. Where's the reverb return so I can turn all that crap off, you know? And and then he would fall in line and everything would work great. Yeah. But for them, their sound was totally different than Montgomery Gentry's sound sure. that they came up with, right? Yeah. Which is totally different than Mary Chapin Carpenter's sound, which yeah. is totally different from whatever, Ray, right? Anybody, yeah. So that's part of the way I look at making records is everybody gets their own thing. And if I fall over dead, at least you have your own thing and you can go do your own thing with somebody else. Yeah. You know, and... I remember the guy that uh, – God, I can't remember his name. The guy that mixed uh, the, the Chick's last record. He uh, He's a mastering engineer in town, Dodd, Richard Dodd. Oh, yeah. He said, man, you know, I listened to those – especially the second record that y'all did. And he goes, and I went, okay, now what did they do? And he said, I actually used it as a reference for their future records. And th- it did a couple of things different that I wouldn't have normally done, but I was trying – uh, that's their sound, yeah. you know, and so that's good. You give them something they can go with for the rest of their lives. Well, but it's like you were saying, you programmed in mistakes, so it has a vibe to it. You hear some of these records, they're so perfect. That right. they, it almost hurt. The ear fatigue sets in after two or three songs. Well, I took my wife to the BMI Awards two years ago, and uh, she hadn't been in 10 years. And Jackie was a publisher and yeah. really good ear, and she's a great player. And, uh, and we were sitting with Buddy Cannon and Billy, his wife, who's awesome. And we were sitting there. And Jackie leans over to me and goes, when did this happen? I said, what, what are you talking about? And she goes, every song has the exact same chord changes. It's a one, four, six minor. I forget what it is, but uh, one, four, six minor, five or something. And I, I was like, oh. And Buddy Cannon leaned over and goes, where the hell have you been? He goes, it's been like that for a while. So during the whole night, every time they would do it, my wife and Buddy would do their fingers right. and do the chord changes yeah. together. And then a Kenny Chesney one came on, and it was the same thing. And Buddy goes, sorry. <laughs> but I yeah, did that. Yeah, but, but it just kind of happened. I think that yeah. the track guys that turn on their computer, and it defaults to 120 beats. Yep. And then they have their certain samples and the chords that they know that work. And sometimes they've already started it. And then they jump into a song. And if it doesn't work, then they can still use it again on the next song. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of these guys are all kind of doing that on the track side. But then I'm starting to hear things that people are doing that are totally different that are not track. You yeah. know? I would love to try to f- 
figure out, I think I'm going to next project, try to do both on one, but try to do it backwards and try to do the, try to do the live band first and then back into the track. Oh, that'd be cool. Just to see. I don't know. We'll see. Gotta but try I can, everything. Well, I can do it, you know, so yeah. I might as well, you know, uh, I, you know, I can sit in front of a computer all day if I have to, and I can <laughs> edit and tweak and program and do all of that. I, well, I sure like going to the boat, though, and I sure like playing golf. Unfortunately, I've gotten where I can program on the boat. I'm screwing that up. I, I can't program while I play golf, though. Yeah. Yeah, I watched a producer who I won't say mixing vocals on an airplane on his laptop. Yeah. And I was talking to him. And, I've comp vocals and done but, that. He didn't have any headphones on. Oh. He was doing it purely by sight. He goes, look at that. Look at how awesome that is. Huh. I was like, huh. How's yeah. it sound? He goes, I'll find out when I get home. It's kind of, uh, I'm colorblind. Oh, okay. So all the computer stuff's in colors. Oh, man. So people go, take the green one. It's like, <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> Point at it, show me. <laughs> I don't look. I have to listen. Well, of all the records... You've produced, no matter how many they sold or how big of the hits they were, what's, what one album are you the most proud of and why? Oh. And I know that's impossible to answer. I, it's impossible. Uh, I would say uh, there's probably a few. There was one I did on John Anderson with Paul Worley called Nobody's Got It All. I think I gave more away than we sold. <laughs> But it was so good, yeah. and he is – why he's not in the Hall of Fame, it Dude. just blows my mind. He is such a badass. That uh, coming forward, I think the Fly record with the Chicks is is really something that I can still put on. and Yeah. Because usually it's hard to listen to a record after I've listened to it yeah. 10,000 times. That, that still holds up. When I worked with the Montgomery Gentry, I did uh, the My Town record. Oh, yeah. That record, uh, I think there's 10 songs on it. Nine of them I just absolutely love. And and I was very proud of that and coming up with what we did on that record, the band I cast and yeah. how we made it. And and I think that single, My Town, as a record, is one of the better records I've ever been a part of. Yeah. That it go. I mean, it kind of is a track build. Yeah. And Jeffrey, as a story, it already built was built so yeah. i think that that one married and that's the one we figured out how to actually uh present those guys because yeah they'd never sang on a song together like one sing the verse one sing the choruses oh, and right. come up with that stick we'd passed on so many hits and i had been thrown into producing them at that point when things had kind of stalled a bit for their career and i got thrown in to make that record and uh, and I was reading off all the songs they had passed on that had become huge hits. And uh, Eddie said, well, that's got too much range and it's got too many words. I, I can't sing the words like that. That's Troy's thing. And Troy go, well, I can't. Eddie's the one that gets all the hits. I don't get, you know, he was, you know, just arguing back and forth about every song while they passed. And that's when it came up with, all right, Eddie, I was sitting with him on the road and I had a guitar in my lap. And I said, do you sing the verse? Troy, you sing the chorus. Yeah. Because they said they couldn't do the song because it had too much range, and 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 we and then we went okay. Now this is a good plan. Now yeah. we need to start finding songs that opens up the whole world now. Absolutely. And then that's when you know later on I heard my town and went well shit yeah, know? and that we just plugged the idea we'd come up with into that and boom we were off to the races. Was you know? Hey Country on that? 
Was that Hey Country? Was that on there? I can't remember. I don't think so. I can't either. I don't think so. Hell Yeah was on that. Uh, yeah. I remember I cut three of Jeffrey's songs and his his publisher came to me and said, man, you know, because, you know, they weren't having hits at the time. So, right. man, those are three of Jeff's best songs. Can you give me a couple of them back? And I was like, man, I can't. You know, I can't do that. Uh, these are all hit songs. And they all three became hit songs yeah. off of the album. So it all worked out. But Man. Well, dude, you have two more minutes. Okay. This is the lightning round. Okay. And I just want you to just off of your top of your head. Don't think about it. What's your favorite book? Uh, last Will and Testament of Lucky Luciani. Dang. What's the last gift you gave someone? A nurse. You gave them a nurse? Yeah, I hired a nurse for some oh, reason. okay. Wow. <laughs> they needed it. That's good. What was the first concert you saw? How old were you? Uh, first concert I think I saw was uh, the Jackson 5, and I was uh, – seven or it was elvis presley and i was seven and and that was at murfreesboro my mother made me and my sister go i'm glad i went my sister was pissed off so they both happened about the same time i'm not sure which one was first right what's the favorite song you've ever recorded uh it's impossible to i don't know uh i think ready to run was pretty good yeah yeah my town's real good what uh, what song do you wish you would have recorded, and would have you produced it differently? Uh, I wish I'd been in the room when they do- did. I don't think Hank would have done it this way. Hmm. And would I've done it different? Uh, I would have made it longer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> More solos. Yes, yes. More Mooney. More Mooney. We don't have to stop just yet. (laughs) Well, what's next for Blake Chansey? Uh, This publishing company thing, I'm having to go back into doing – my daughter is interning for us right now. And I I said, well, you can intern for us, but you got to report to Scott because Scott – it was Scott Simon's idea. And she was in the office the other day, and she goes, so where's my dad's office? And they said, well, when he comes in, it's over there. And so, what does your dad do? And she goes, what's my dad do? And I said, well, you know, a little of everything, you know. And that's what every day, you know, I, I, I do a lot of commercial development. Mm-hmm. So I'll go mess with that a while or, or I'll come in and even try to mess with writing a song or something and build a track with an artist I'm developing or build a track for a song that they've done just because I need pre-production on yeah. it. And or I'll come in and record a full band like I've been doing recently here in my place here. And uh, that's pretty much it. Build it, it, whether it's commercial, real estate, or music. Buy it if it's copyright, and do go forwards and and have great people around me to work with. And record it. Thank God I don't have to work with people I don't want to work with anymore. Amen. (laughs) Well, dude, I love you, man. Thank you. you. It's been. I hope I didn't bore you. No, man. I think I looked up. uh, I met you when your dad was producing Canyon, which would be in 1988. Yeah, 16th Avenue Records. 16th Avenue Records. That's right. Been here a minute. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Awesome, man. Thank you, brother. You got it. 